Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 105 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. David Defoe, a national certified counselor and grief recovery specialist. We have a conversation about leadership and mental health. There was a Forbes article earlier this year that talks about some of the stigma related to executives and leaders getting treatment for mental health challenges. And in that article, it, it said that studies indicate that when companies invest in mental health training, it often provides a 10 to one return on investment. It helps to reduce stigma. It helps to train managers. It improves organizational culture And it presents this idea that having your team get support for their mental health is both an ethical priority and a business imperative. I'll put the link to that article in in the show notes. Now, before we jump into this conversation with Dr. Uh, David Defoe, I want to invite you, if you're in the Orlando area, to join me and my friends for the next stop of the Find Your Courage Tour. Many of you know uh, I wrote a book, Le- Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going. And as part of the book tour for that, we're doing these leadership workshops across the country to help leaders find their courage. So on January 19th, at the University of Central Florida, uh, myself, along with several other great guys, will be having conversations about leadership and courage. I'll be joined by Jamie Pottinger, Kamon Hines, Julian Johnson, and Chris Bartley. Now, tickets for the Find Your Courage tour stop in Orlando right now, the early bird ticket is only $25. I mean, you can't beat that. A half-day half day session on leadership development. You get a free book, a free copy of Leading While Scared as, as an attendee to the event. And we're just going to pour into you and give you practical, actionable strategies on how to lead with more courage in 2020. So you want to join us. Join us in Orlando. Join us in Orlando January 19th for for the Find Your Courage Tour. And you can get your tickets at Courage Orlando. That's courageorlando.eventbrite.com. Now, I know my voice sounds a little bit funny. The, the flu bug hit our family hard during the holiday season. And we've been trying to grin and bear it. We've been drinking all types of concoctions. We've been trying to get rest and, and load up on vitamins. And we're powering through it uh, slowly but surely. So just a shout out to everybody who's struggling and fighting through <coughs> fighting through uh, the flu season. OK, so future conversation today is with my good friend, Dr. David Defoe. He is a licensed clinical professional counselor, a national certified counselor and a grief recovery specialist. He's been providing counseling and mental health services to individuals and families since 2003. He's worked with a diverse population of clients and with a wide variety of clinical concerns. He sees clients ranging from all types of issues, mood disorders, adjustment disorders. He he does marriage and couples counseling, family counseling, conflict resolution, stress mitigation, crisis and trauma therapy, and grief recovery. He's a approved clinical supervisor in the state of Maryland. And he has his doctorate of family ministries, and he is working on his Ph.D. 
Here's my conversation with my good friend, Dr. David Defoe. So let's let's just dive right in. You you're you're a counselor. You're so how do we refer counselor therapist? Is there a distinction? How do we how do we delineate? Uh, there's not really a distinction. Um, the, the words are interchangeable: counselor, therapist, psychotherapist, mental health therapist, mental health counselor. They're all interchangeable. Okay, so this is this is your your career path right now. Take us back to to college life. Was this something that you had on the horizon entering into you know, mental health and psychotherapy, or did you have did you have other intentions? You know, how did you end up here? Well, I ended up here uh, because people normally always talk to me about their problems and their concerns. Um, I intentionally, I initially wanted to be a lawyer uh, because I wanted to make money, and <laughs> I figured I could talk real good, um, and I can I can convince people of things. Um, but I wanted to initially be a lawyer, uh, and of course, God called me um, into full-time pastoral ministry, and I went into mental health psychology as sort of a supplement to that. Um, and it has just taken off since then. I went uh, after graduating seminary and starting in my first district, I went to do a master's in counseling. Uh, and I finished that in about 2009. And since then, um, I've just been doing it since then. So what do you... What what are some of the major uh, stigma or apprehension related to when people talk about going to see a counselor or a therapist or, you know, somebody to talk through their their problems? Because, you know, I imagine there's a lot of stigma or apprehension, especially in, you know, community. I come from African-American community. Uh, wh- what are some of the reasons behind why that's a challenge for people to, to find help in that way? It could be an amalgamation of things. I mean, it could be people's discomfort with telling people their business. It could be a misnomer from either the movies or from the media that people who seek professional help for at least their emotional well-being or their mental health are crazy or we're afraid to be labeled or we're afraid to have people in our business. It could be many different things, um, especially in our community. We utilize the the church or the black church and the pastor as a one-stop place to fix everything. And so, uh, especially in the Black community and in the Black church, we hyper-spiritualize mental health issues. And so we discredit or discount some mental health professionals or uh, sitting down and speaking with someone uh, about our problems, about our challenges, about our stressors. Uh, We discount that. We think we can take everything to Jesus. But um, I don't remember where I heard it, but someone I heard someone say the other day, uh, we need Jesus and counseling. I don't know where I got it from. It's not my original, but I just heard it the other day. And we find not not just in religious spaces, uh, but also in, I guess, what we define as secular work, in, work environments. There's also this stigma uh, related to you know, mental health. And, you know, when we think about leadership development, management courses in college, uh, for the most part, there's not a lot of conversation around Okay, if you're if you're going to be in business, if you're going to run a company, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you also have to be knowledgeable of the challenges of mental health. Why do you think that's that's missing uh, from academia? I think one of the reasons is we don't necessarily teach vulnerability Mm -hmm. and to admit that there's some things about yourself or there's some things within uh, your ability to handle the exigencies of life that you really can't actually handle. 
uh, it's hard to sort of admit that. And when you're in school, they're trying to teach you to be your best self. And they don't make room for the fact that, you know, we all have these growing edges that we need to push or we always have these things that we need to work on. And especially for leaders and entrepreneurs like myself, we don't really have or don't take the time and the space to uh, to manage our mental health or to manage our frustrations or our difficulties because things have to roll. Business has to be made. Uh, the connections have to be made. The people have to be led. And sometimes we put ourselves on the back burner. Uh, in service to other people. And uh, that's another reason that um, you don't see, especially with leaders, a lot of leaders engaging in uh, this uh, emotional building or this psychological building. I, I heard someone say a while ago that if you're in a position of influence, you should probably find a therapist before you have problems, Be like to keep things going, going well and not necessarily and try to book an appointment when, you know, the, the wheels have fallen off and there's a crisis. What, what's your take on just these conversations and support at different areas or different stress segments of life? Yeah, and I know that you've seen this um, as you go out and you'd engage with leaders and you try to train leaders. One thing that we see is um, the greater your leadership role the the thinner things are around you, the thinner the support is around you. It's almost like if you've ever been on an airplane, um, the reason that a cabin or an airplane is pressurized, it's because outside the the, um, the the air gets thinner and they need to bring oxygen on the plane because the air is thinner. The higher you go, the thinner things are as far as uh, air pressure is concerned. So some of us uh, say it's the same for us as leaders. The higher you are, the more out of touch you can be if you if you if you stay out of touch, the, the greater your, your, your visibility is, the greater your vulnerability. So we see that the damage that it can cause as, as leaders is people can attack us and misunderstand us. And it's very easy to uh, internalize um, their own, un, someone else's uninformed criticism as accurate me- measurements or assessments of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the truth of the matter is when people are looking at, uh, the people, when people are looking up at you because you're higher than them, the easiest thing that they can see is you're behind, your mess, your mistakes. Mm-hmm. The bigger you are, the bigger the target on your back. And so some leaders can't handle that because of their insatiable desire to either be liked or, and they place that desire to be liked above the responsibility to be effective. And so we don't like the fact that the air is thin when you're at the top. We don't like the fact that people um, talk about us or people don't understand us or they blame us for things that have nothing to do with us. And uh, so we need to create the space um, outside of our leadership environments where we can go sit with someone, talk with someone, where they can talk to us about uh, these challenges that we have, the fact that people don't understand, the fact that we have pressure on us that maybe um, those people that we lead or we serve can't even comprehend. They don't understand the pressure um, because they're not in the thin air. Let's talk about sports for a little bit. I know you're from Boston. You're a huge sports fan. Yeah, and a lot of times, let's go past. Oh, okay. <laughs> a lot of times when we look at not just, I mean, not just athletes, we can't limit it to that, but there's sometimes this, this premise that as long as your proficiency outweighs your liability, we will overlook anything that you do. And a lot of times we find sports, entertainers, athletes, 
they have challenges, you know, serious challenges, uh, things that have happened to them or adjusting to fame or whatever, off the field, off the court stuff. But on the field, as long as they're producing, we kind of turn a blind eye uh, to it. And we find ourselves doing the same thing in organizations as well. As long as a person is producing in the organization, the sales are coming in, um, there's some attraction, the numbers are good. We turn a blind eye to the challenges that they may, may be having. How, how can we have, what's the best way to introduce really a conversation with a high performer? I mean, do you just say, if I can tell something's going wrong, do I just say, hey, bro, you, bro, you need to go talk to somebody? Or like, how do I, how do I enter into it? Because it's sensitive and it's vulnerable. What are some safe ways to make suggestions or to get help for people, especially when they're top performers in an organization? Well, the, the first, the ownership has to fall on the top performer themselves to make sure that they don't surround themselves with people that are just so impressed with them that mm -hmm. they can't tell them, you know, you're messing up where you've, you've created such a vacuum that no one can speak to you because, you know, they, their voices can't get up that high because, you know, your, your, your head is so high in the clouds. Um, so that, that's one thing. We have to make sure that we keep people near us that can tell us when we're messing up, when uh, we need to come in and check ourselves, or we need to create those spaces where we can uh, engage uh, in uh, either hobbies or engage in conversations uh, through leadership coaching, through counseling, through um, mastermind groups where we continue to be sharpened, where we're held accountable. Accountability is a big thing. We know that when someone's uh, talent trumps their, 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 their accountability or when talent trumps someone's need to be held accountable, hmm. um, they're no longer useful because it then, it then creates in themselves an idea that they're above everybody else because no one can hold me accountable. I'm so special. Uh, that no one can touch me. And that's dangerous it's, uh, for leaders, uh, for, for business owners, for, for anybody, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for culture, um, for the people that abide by the rules, for the people that may have the same talent but may not have the same visibility. Uh, they see one person getting away with something and they say, well, how is it that I can't get away with that? And it creates this culture of unfairness and this culture of, uh, of, of, of willy-nilly leadership where if you mean something to me or if I can get something from you, I'll let this go. Uh, but everybody else has to play by a different rule. And that's a challenge. Mm. That is what makes the Patriots great, by the way, in case you want to know. That, you know, they hold Brady to the same responsibilities and standards they held everybody else to. You know, no one's treated special. Yeah, I, I don't know. I might have to edit that out. I don't know. It depends on how, how much time we have. In, in yeah, the you'll leave it in. <laughs> so, okay, so let's... Let's go back to this kind of pedestal thing, you know, visibility. We may have the same level of talent, but we don't have the same level of visibility in getting away with getting away with letting people slide behind or purchase special privileges. How is an organization, if we recognize, okay, a person, person X has had a challenge, a disagreement, some discrepancies in their interaction. We've let it, we've let it go. It's caused a toxic work environment. But now we want to address it. Now we want to bring some clarity. Um, and it seems like an email won't work. What, what's the best way? After, if I, as a leader, have recognized that I've been unfair in my dealings with people and my unfair in dealings with people have created a negative work culture, 
a, a damaging mental health environment? What are some of the ways that I could practically not just own up to my mistake, but begin to now develop a, a better culture um, that's safer and more equitable for the people that I work with? One, one of the things that are important for us to understand as, uh, as leaders, we are in the people business. And we have to develop relationships with people. We cannot be effective without developing relationships. Now, this doesn't mean we have to like being around people, but we have to at least appreciate the uniqueness and import in the human and the humanity of others. Uh, we live in a world that promotes distance from one another. Like we we build fences and we buy locks and we don't talk on elevators and we see people we see one another on the street and we just walk by them, but. The leader who manages human beings, human capital, can't, uh, we can't afford to be like that with others. Um, and so I think relationships and building relationships with people so that we can actually talk to them and they actually listen and understand that we care, understand that we don't have it out for them, but that, we, um, that their, their, their growth is mutual or is a mutual benefit to the company's growth or to the leader's growth. I think that's very important. We have to maintain uh, and build relationships with the people that we serve so that we can in those moments where we need to pull someone in and we need to have con hard conversations, that those hard conversations do not cause damage because it's the only conversation we've ever had. Mm. So should people who, maybe, maybe their prof personality profile, disposition, communication style, isn't one that's high on the social scale and they're not big on interaction per se. Should, should people that follow fall in that paradigm uh, not go for these higher profile roles that require them to be around more people? Or how do you mitigate that? Because I could be highly technical proficient, technically proficient and be able to garner resources that make change. But what if on the other side, because of, some trauma, some experience in my past, something that happened, I'm, I'm apprehensive about being around people. Is there any hope for me in a, in a prominent role, an influential role? Listen, absolutely, okay? Um, the, uh, um, I think Shakespeare says in Hamlet, this of all, to thine own self be true, right? Mm -hmm. We have to know who we are and be okay with who we are not. Right? The journey to self-awareness and self-acceptance sometimes is very difficult. But once we've traveled it, we have to be content with where we then end up. Okay? So sure, we push our growing edges as, as leaders. So if I, don't, if I can't engage well with people, then uh, I, have to, I have to work on it. Sure, we push our growing edges. But our strengths are our strengths. And we can spend so much time envying others' strengths and wishing that, they, that their strengths were our strengths. Or we can go out and operate in our own unique with and our own uniqueness with which we were created and or even conditioned to be. Now, it like I said, it doesn't mean that we don't get better or we don't continue to stretch ourselves so that we can learn more. But the gift of self-actualization is the space within ourselves where we discover or we get to know who we are, where we discover what we can do, and we limit ourselves not by our weaknesses but we limit ourselves by our strengths. And we find fulfillment in knowing that what I am doing, what I'm capable, I'm doing what I'm capable of. And because I'm doing what I'm capable, I'm capable of, 
and not much else then begins to matter because it wasn't my assignment to begin with or something like in Adlerian psychology, they'll tell you it wasn't your task to begin with because you weren't given it to start with. So we have to have that self-actualization to be content with what we have and then operate out of what we have and stop being so envious of others and saying, oh, I wish I can be this person. I wish I can be that person. Lead from your own armor. Walk in your own strength. Whatever it is you bring to the table, bring it. If you have needs around you, staff the needs that are around you. Um, don't be like me and hire the same people that are just like me. Um, staff people around you that can help you, that can build you, that can that 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 can take care of where you're weak. Uh, when I was teaching college students, and even with some of the the people that I coach, a lot of people say they would make different choices but they're afraid of what their parents would say that they would choose a different job or they would take a better risk or things would be different. And, and they worry about how their parents or people who are close to them respond. How, how, how do you navigate that conversation and even related to self-awareness? Because sometimes when we're in a, in a hot seat or a seat of introspection, we're trying a lot to keep the attention off of us and look at somebody else. So, so how do you mitigate the things that happened to me growing up or, or the influence of my parents um, does have impact and also this sort of self-reflective, it's also the choice that you're making paradigm. It's, it boils down to who we live life for. Do we live life for other to manage other people's expectations, or um, do we arrive at the point where we're where we're self actualized, where we can make our own choices? Uh, it also has it also is starting to cross over into where your last book led us. Um, this idea of courage. Sometimes we have to have the courage to 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 break out of what is familiar. You see, if I do what my parents expect and I fail, it then becomes my parents' responsibility. It's then my parents' fault because I didn't make this own choice. But for some of us, we won't be comfortable making our own choices because we don't know how to deal with the reality that we may try something that we chose and we may fail. But we don't understand that the, uh, the self-actualization comes from making the choice, uh, that the success comes in being autonomous enough to say, I'm going to choose to do this. And a lot of us, we, we struggle with that because we don't like to take the blame or we, we, we don't want to be really responsible for our own lives. And so we have, to be, we have to be courageous. And for many of us, we don't have the courage. And an old professor used to say to, uh, of mine, used to say all the time, uh, courage comes and goes. So just hold on for the next supply. Mm. Mm. There, there's, there, there are some people who struggle really with courage as it relates to having a conversation with somebody like you. And a lot of it comes from what we talked about before, a lot of these misnomers. And one of the misnomers as it relates to, to, to therapy and counselors is that if I come into your office, you're going to fix me. And I don't, I don't want to sit down and have a conversation with the person who's going to fix me, or I tried it and it didn't work because the person didn't fix me. Uh, as it relates to that pendulum swing, how, how do you respond as a mental health professional? Well, one, we don't fix anyone. Um, we walk with people through their own journey of, of self-discovery, self-actualization, um, self-awareness. Um, however, and, and 
this is going to come across a little a little more uh, reflective because it's a very sensitive thing. If I my whole life have carried the weight of my past, the weight of my family, the weight of what people have said to me, um, all this stuff that I've been carrying all this time, and I bring it to someone, and I walk into an office and I carry it. I've been carrying it my whole life. I walk into someone's office, and after a couple of months, a couple of sessions, a couple of uh, a couple of uh, breakthroughs, I now find myself walking out of the office without the stuff I've carried my entire life. The life that I've lived previous to that is now over. Like the, ex- the excuses are gone, the pain is gone, the forgiveness has happened, the reconciliation has happened, and now what do I do? And for some people, the prospect of the unknown is so frightful that they would rather keep the pain that they've been carrying than to experience liberation or freedom or wholeness. And that's one of the biggest mental, that's one of the biggest challenges and roadblocks that we experience in therapy is that uh, people build up walls and the walls that they build up are built there to protect them. Well, if we tear down those walls, they no longer can protect themselves. So we have to develop the coping mechanisms. We have to develop the, re- the, uh, the resiliency in order to build back new walls to protect them, but you know, walls that would be beneficial to them. And so the, the, the counseling moment and being able to be confronted with your stuff, what you carry, your burden, um, is difficult. It takes courage to walk in and actually start to work on it. Many people come to therapy, and <laughs> I have plenty of clients that just want to come and sit and talk, and you ask them deep uh, probing questions and they don't really want to answer. So I have no problem sitting down and creating the space for them to just talk about you know whatever is going on, decompress whatever is going on. Um, but when real work starts to happen, it's painful. Um, it forces us to have conversations that we've been avoiding. It forces us to bring from um, from our uh, a subconscious level to, to our conscious level some things that we've been repressing, some things that we've been running from, and being confronted with the monsters that we've hidden from, uh, and having to deal with them is a real tough thing. It's not it's not easy. It's hard, um, but it's so rewarding. It's so beneficial. Um, but it takes courage. What advice do you have for individuals who find themselves in an environment where maybe the leader, I mean, it's clear, it's no secret. Um, The leader is struggling with something and it could be anything in narcissism, arrogance, verbal abuse, anything, isolation, the leaders withdrawn, whatever it is. It's it's making for an uncomfortable work environment, a work culture. What, what advice do you have for people um, navigating? Maybe maybe they're not the decision maker, so they can't you know they can't fire their boss or their supervisor, and they have to choose like do I do I stay? Do I leave? How do I process? And how do I get through these environments that are that are uncomfortable and common uh, to workspaces? Yeah. Um. There's a great book uh, by uh, Craig by Clay Scriggins. I think Andy Stanley actually wrote the uh, the forward to it. But it's how to, it's entitled "How to Lead When You're Not in Charge: hmm. Leveraging Influence When You Lack uh, Authority." Um, one of the things that um, that I, I gathered when reading that book, and also um, through just being involved in organizations myself, where 
you can tell there's some deficiencies with whatever people above you. Um, uh, we have to operate in our own responsibility just because the person that we're ultimately responsible uh, to or um, uh, isn't doing or is a pole or isn't um, doing the best that they can do. It doesn't mean that we don't operate from our own self-autonomy where we say, okay, this is the level of work that I produce regardless of what everyone else around me is doing. This is how um, I manage myself or this is how I pursue excellence for myself regardless of what someone else is doing around me. And I think that's very important is um, we can't give in because the culture stinks or we can't uh, say, well, I can't operate within this dysfunction because um, the people above me can't get things together. We still have our own responsibility, even if it's not to the organization, to ourselves, to be our best selves. And if we hold on to that, we can still work. We can still do our best, even though it doesn't seem like it probably is doing much. As as an emerging leader, as a growing leader that, that's seeking to become more effective, why should I embrace the idea that having a, a therapist or a counselor is is integral to my professional development, my growth, and and even my my overall career success. Uh, having someone to help you see not not the world but yourself is uh, beneficial. Um, someone to walk with you to identify what your growing edges are. Someone to help you establish boundaries to uh, to, to push you to. Um, set a perimeter around your personal and your private spaces um, so that the world and those um, exigent things don't come crashing into your world to disrupt your effectiveness. Um, it's being able to share something with someone that you know can't repeat it. And for some of us, we need to let go of those secrets in a place that uh, we know can't be repeated, where it's non-judgmental, um, where, uh, where I can I can be me. I can be bare, and it's not even being vulnerable because you're talking to someone that can't do anything about it. They can't they can't tell anybody. They they can just help you walk with it. Um, you know, I think that's important. Um, but having someone to to talk to to help you see uh, yourself is very important, especially if you can't. Especially if you spend so much time engaging and managing other people. And taking on other people's stuff, you need someone to help you walk with you uh, to manage your own. As a person who works in this field, uh, what are some of the things that give you the greatest satisfaction or the the feeling like what you're doing is is actually worth it? Um, <laughs> it's the it's the progress. It's the growth. It's seeing a couple come in and they're ready to they're ready to kill each other, and they they leave excited about having dates and about uh, continuing anniversaries and working on their challenges. It's it's uh, it's someone coming in and having um, anxiety about a new job or or, or about uh, a new challenge and them developing the internal fortitude and the internal courage to then go out and do it or go out and try it. It's, 
It's the depressed person or the person who comes in with suicidal ideations for, for whatever reason. Um, and getting that glimmer of hope that, no, everything is not perfect, but uh, I can deal with the darkness. I can deal with, uh, I, I can deal with uh, the pain. It's, it's walking with people who have lost loved ones and experienced the sting of death and the grief that is associated with it, helping them build a, 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 a new life. Um, those are the things that, uh, that, that, that really um, hold me into this thing. This idea that I teach people not to uh, see the world and see how dangerous the world is, but uh, to approach their own belief system, their own life system, um, uh, and instead of trying to carpet the world, put on shoes, learning how to stand in the darkness, um, learning how to deal with the pain, learning how to process the anger, learning how to pursue forgiveness and to reconcile with family. That, that's, that, that, that's the biggest benefit. Great conversation with my friend, Dr. David Foe, about leadership and mental health. It's a tough conversation to have especially when you realize that the only way that you're going to get better is if you talk to someone who is trained to help walk you through some of the challenges that you're facing. I want to invite you to check out goodtherapy.org. That's goodtherapy.org to find a therapist in your area. And that's all I got for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. And part of living and learning and leading with confidence getting a handle on your mental health. So until next time, take care and God bless.